New England Law Review's podcast features forthcoming authors, both professional and student, to be featured in the forum in our print publication, New England Law Boston professors discussing their scholarship, as well as interviews with the symposia guests. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the New England Law Review podcast. My name is Nicholas Baban, and I'm the executive online editor of the New England Law Review, and I'm very excited to welcome our next guest. He is an assistant professor of criminal law at Alexandria University Faculty of Law in Egypt, adjunct professor of law at Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law at Indianapolis, visiting professor of law at the University of Brasilia School of Law in Brazil, and recently a visiting scholar and adjunct professor of law at Cornell University School of Law via the Clark Initiative for Law and Development in the Middle East in Ithaca, New York. He has authored several law articles and book chapters in U.S., European, Brazilian, and Arab peer review journals on numerous topics. His next stop is visiting professor of law at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, Today he is here to discuss his upcoming article, Dreams Without Illusions, the Buriotic Buriotic Cholesterol, Administrative Corruption and the Future of a Real Democratic Middle East. Please welcome Professor Mohammed Arafa. Thank you for uh, being here today. Thank you very much, uh, um, Nick, for having me. Appreciate that. Of course. And so, Professor, before we dive into the upcoming article, that you're going to be publishing here with the New England Law Review. Could you give us our, uh, could you give our listeners a summary of your background and the areas upon which uh, that you focus? Sure. Um, I'm already um, a citizen of Egypt and I moved here to the United States in 2007 on a USAID program to do my LLM uh, degree in international legal studies at the University of Connecticut Law School. Then I moved to the Indiana University McKinney School of Law to pursue my doctoral degree, the SJD um, degree, uh, from there in international uh, criminal law. Specifically, I focused on uh, in, on corruption matters in, in, in my doctoral project with Frank Emmert, was uh, my supervisor at that time. And um, my, my first bachelor degree or my first law degree was in from Alexandria University Law School, um, which uh, I did study mostly, um, I can say, like comparative law and we focused mostly on the civil law system uh, because, you know, in the Middle East, mostly laws are based on the civil law system, which versus the common law system here. And um, when, when I moved here, it was interesting to me because I started to focus on Islamic law and Middle Eastern legal studies. Um, however, I was focusing before I came here on white-collar crime, specifically in the area of criminal law. Um, and this is what I decided to write on corruption in my, in my, um, in my dissertation or doctoral dissertation. But uh, it was interesting to me because I, I, I realized that there is a big demand right now here in the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia about how interesting Islamic lawyers and Middle Eastern legal studies, specifically after the Arab Spring. So I, I focus right now on, on, on that area, specifically dealing with issues like human rights within the Middle East, terrorism, transitional justice, th- this kind of, of issues. Yeah. 
Wow. So that all sounds extremely interesting. Professor, your forthcoming article focuses on corruption, particularly um, in the field of public administration throughout the Middle East. Could you tell our listeners how um, this particular topic came to interest you? Sort of the main thing that came to my uh, attention when I decided to write this piece, I was discussing how rampant corruption is widespread in the Middle East even after the Arab Spring. And I was discussing this issue on this matter over lunch with two great friends of mine uh, I met while at Cornell Law School, Professor Moon and Adoodle. He teaches a lot of human rights courses down there, and also Professor Michael Dorf. Um, so he told me, what is your writing projects right now? And it was like saying, I'm developing something probably on administrative corruption and, and mostly institutional corruption. And in the Middle East, and I wanted to focus on how institutional corruption throughout different institutions in the Middle East, specifically Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, I mean, the, the countries that recently have this uprising, and that they have, I can say, a destruction in their institutions, specifically the institutions uh, focuses on, um, I can say, like dealing with corruption and corruption cases, like whistleblowers, things, and uh, like auditing. Uh, organizations and keep, I mean, the book record, um, organizations to to track corruption scandals. And one of the main reasons, as mostly of our listeners know, that Arab Spring came out because of corruption scandals of the regimes. It mostly institutional corruption, economic corruption, financial corruption. And this is how, if you look at how the, actually the courts recently in the Middle East have been dealing uh, to put this um, ex-leaders or former leaders, including President Mubarak, for example, of Egypt, uh, President, uh, the past president of Tunisia, Bin Ali, which he died recently, um, also into courts because of uh, corruption matters. Two days ago, we heard about even Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He had been like caught and indicted with different corruption and fraud matters. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it, which I, of course, I mean, I can say that also Israel is a part of the. You can consider it as a part of the Middle East, not an Arab country, but a part of the Mediterranean region. So you can see all, corruption is rampant, and I realize you see that very deeply now within the United States. So I think that's that's one of the main things to look at in institutions now because one of the main things when I moved here to the United States that impressed me is how how strong the institutions are, and now I feel how fragile these institutions are under the current administration. And now I start to feel oh that's that's almost now the United States almost getting to the the the, the Middle Eastern way of I can say of ruling in terms of conflict of interest in terms of um, peddling the influence or using uh, office, uh, misusing the power, in, specifically if you're a public official or if you're like into office as the presidency office, which is, 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 is very, like, very strong to me here to see that happen in, I can say, um, the, the, the strongest nation uh, in terms of democracy and human rights uh, issues.
So it's safe to say that kind of the global perspective sure. of the an application exactly. is definitely interesting to you. Totally, absolutely. So you mentioned corruption a lot, and one of the keys to understanding your article is um, understanding what you write about and what you mean by corruption, because cr corruption could mean something different for one person sure. or another person. What does corruption mean within the context of your article? One of the main things that I can tell you, the values of better and effective governance, including transparency, integrity, fairness, and accountability are becoming increasingly prominent, raising expectation that will certainly change the relationship between the governments and the citizens, specifically the public institutions. So the article discuss the history of, of corruption within um, its, its definition, and you will see that there are a lot even um, of, of, of scholars that they have been connecting corruption with the concept of democracy. And as you mentioned, that the definition of corruption could be uh, different from country to another, uh, specifically when it comes to concepts like quid pro quo or peddling an influence or misusing power. And one of the main things that I can tell you, which is totally predominant in the Middle East, is two things in terms of corruption, is financial corruption by regimes, by leaders into office, and mostly I can tell you misuse of power. And misuse of power here mostly related to um, the misuse of human rights and the democratic values. And um, that's also, I can tell you, uh, one of the main reasons that these uh, uprisings or revolutions or uh, whatever you call it, I'm not sure if, if we could describe that what happened in the Middle East within the first wave of the Arab Spring and the second wave of the Arab Spring as revolutions or not. Uh, but it's, 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 it, it was the corruption and the misuse of human rights um, issue. So intrinsic in the right to democracy that representative government be free from corruption and political scientists along with legal scholars argue that corruption is normally defined as behavior which deviates from formal duties of public role or public office uh, because of pecuniary or status gain or violates rules against the exercise of certain sorts of private regarding influence including bribery and embezzlement and we can say Right now, in terms of the impeachment inquiry of the President of the United States, how the, the definition of bribery started to be developed from, uh, from one case to another. Because mostly, I can tell in the Middle East, specifically in their penal codes or criminal laws, that they connect the bribery to financial matters more than uh, quid pro quo political matters, like mm -hmm. misusing office, like to, or to ask a foreign government to give you a courage or a support for um, the upcoming election or for a political, uh, you know, uh, political support or something like that. It's, it's, it's most, now there is a kind of, I can tell you that the, the new laws that after the Arab Spring, uh, wanted to be designed to include this kind of concepts and this kind of terms at the current moment. But I can tell you there is no much more work 
um, on, on, on that perspective. So, and the best uh, description of how the corruption should be defined, I think we can realize that from the 2003 United Nations Convention Against Corruption, when the preamble mentioned, or in its preamble mentioned, uh, problems and threat posed by corruption to undermining the institutions and values of democracy, ethical values and justice, and jeopardizing sustainable development and the rule of law. And all of these values, I totally agree with the definition of the United Nations Convention, specifically we do lack in our region, um, in, in, in the Middle East generally, um, this, the values of democracy, the ethical values into office. And when I talk about the rule of law, I can tell you that I, I mostly like to touch on the abuses of human rights in, in that perspective and how uh, regimes um, in, in, in that part of the world, they abuse their power to undermine um, the, 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 the enhancement of, of human rights. So you've defined corruption for us, but how does corruption uh, or what is corruption's relation to democracy? Corruption breaks the link between collective decision and um, decision making and people powers to influence collective decision through speaking and voting, the very link that defines democracy. And there are scholars that they have been talking about the definition of corruption and uh, its relation to democracy. Like uh, the, 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 the first scholar, which is mostly, I can tell you, Professor Robert Keltgar, he mentioned and he talked about corruption in terms of practical values of betrayal of the trust that has been placed in an individual in giving him a specific position in business or government. On the other hand, Justice Nanan highlights the far broader moral meaning or the moral concept of corruption, um, of being um, mostly relatively corrupt, which mostly he refer to the intent or the corrupt intent in, in, in his definition. So in terms of, 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 of Justice Nanan, um, in, interpretation, I think he focused on morality, which is very, which is a very vague or ambiguous term or broad term to how you will connect or you will interpret the intention of a person if you have this corrupt intent, specifically, as you know, uh, generally criminal law never deals with like, um, deals within the intention if you knowingly do thing but never uh, penalize or punish people people for their preliminary thoughts before these thoughts have to be i can say translated to be a crime committed so it's 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 very complicated when you deal with the definition of corruption from that perspective and in in terms of democracy as as you mentioned in these contexts um, where democracy is not decisively rooted, the question of corruption becomes who does a democratic government in fact serve? President Abraham Lincoln of the United States spoke several years ago in that perspective. I'm quoting him and he mentioned of the people, by the people, and for the people, and asked whether how long it can survive. 
So democracy is more susceptible to corruption charges than other forms of government for two reasons. First of all, the freedom of press, freedom of speech, and political task that comes with democracy permits opponents of a corrupt government to misuse public resources, specifically when you deal with a military government or the government of a dictatorial regime. Second, democracies have the distinct problem of funding luxurious political activities, and if they are not to be funded from tax revenues, they must be funded by private persons who will want something from the candidates they support. In that perspective here, in describing the linkage or the relationship between corruption and democracy, one can argue that corruption may take place at a high level or at low levels through a system. It may be prevalent and systematic at whatever level it's functioning or may be occasional. A lot of scholars in that perspective have been discussing the citizen distrust within the government, and this is mostly the common, I can tell you, kind of a common symptom in, in the Middle Eastern countries, that mostly citizens are not believing in their government. Mm -hmm. Although they have been talking about democracy or talking about the enhancement of human rights, and mostly I can tell that at some point the Western governments wanted to support that rights, human rights or democracy democratic values in the region, but they are not able and they always fail because mostly the important thing for the Western governments is to sustain their interest within their region regardless of the democratic values. So mostly if the dictatorship is okay within the stability of the region, that's fine. And this is what we can see right now within the government of the United States. So, which is, which is a little bit sad to see that um, in, 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 in here. But finally, with that res within that respect, uh, I want to say that within the Arab Spring uprisings of 2011, corruption was high on the list of complaints presented by demonstrators, um, specifically in countries like Algeria, Tunisia, Libya. Egypt. And this is what I, you will see that it, it will be discussed further in the article. Specifically, I looked at the case of Egypt and the case of Tunisia. But it's important because as of January 2019th now, the legacy of the 2011 Arab Spring remains unsettled, as just John Kennedy was described as an idealist without illusions. So the individuals of North Africa and Middle Eastern region have realized that the success of the Arab Spring will be judged not by the inactuation of lofty democratic standards, either in Tunis in uh, Tunis streets or Tahrir Square in downtown Cairo. Um, so Tunisia and Egypt have celebrated in the exit of dictators, but it remains to be seen whether the institutions in these countries are exercising a meaningful role within governance. And so you've talked about corruption, you've defined it for us, and then you've talked about the relationship between corruption and democracy. But the thing that seems to be disconnected is the citizens from their democracy in some yes. of these Middle Eastern countries. Exactly. So why do you focus your research on the Middle East? What is it about the Middle East that uh, drives you to do this research and write this article? One of the main things that I focus my research on the Middle East, specifically recently, that I'm from the region. 
right. specifically <laughs> Egypt, you know. And I have had the hope in 2011 that when the revolution came out, I was not in Egypt at that time. I was watching from Boston, actually. I was sitting with a great Egyptian friend of mine. We have been together at Harvard Law School, and we have been watching online what's going on. You know, we are even at that time, I remember that we were not able to uh, catch up with our families through the Internet or the, the cell phones because the regime at that time, the Mubarak regime at that time, uh, ordered the, the secretary of interior or the minister of interior to cut off the whole communications and the, 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 the Internet services at this point. Um, the Middle East is a very interesting regime in terms of the U.S. foreign policies. U.S. have a lot of foreign policies in that region. When we're talking about the democratic, the democratic values that the United States wanted to achieve or to see in that region, that came to its national security interests of, of, of the United States. So one of the main examples for, for, for that, that I focus on the Middle East, specifically within the the perspective of the um, national security interests, the United States is interested to see the moderate part of the Middle East, which when, when I'm, I'm talking about the moderate part, I mean Egypt, Lebanon, Tunisia, uh, Jordan, um, Algeria, Morocco, that mostly the part that have been uh, exposed to colonialism. Mm -hmm. uh, right. To see stability down there, stability in terms of economic interests, and, and also one of the main of the the main national security interests of the United States is the Suez Canal. Suez Canal is an important canal for the economic interests of the United States. The other thing is the peace treaty with Israel is one of the main things that the United States wanted to keep. Another thing is the counterterrorism programs and how. The, the, the semi-authoritarianism regimes deal with fighting radical Islamists. And that's one of the main important interests of the, I mean, within the national security interests of the United States. And this is why always we can see that President Trump at this point, he always supporting dictatorial regimes in the Middle East under the umbrella of that they are fighting, you know, um, Islamic radicals. Right. On the other hand, the, the conservative part of the Middle East, which include the Gulf, the Gulf area, uh, I meant by Gulf, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Bahrain, is the oil. And that's one of the main things, the main economic interests of the United States. And this is what all President Trump always mentioned, that oil isn't important. I mean, it's important for us. And they always, like I said, we have to take care of oil. And look at what he had been recently doing was in Syria and the Kurds and the said that I will take off all of our American troops from, you know, Syria and, and, and Iraq because we are not, we shouldn't be there anymore and we have to bring soldiers home. But at the same point, he said, but we will leave some of those to take care of the oil because we need the oil, mm -hmm. you know. So that's one of the main interesting thing when you do research to look at the U.S. perspective is if from an I hear, like when you are present here, you will see it. And to be honest, in 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 in, in at, on this point, you will see that the biggest law schools in the United States focus a lot now on 
the Middle Eastern regime, and they saw that through the growing centers that the big law schools or the top law schools in the United States that they have been developing centers in terms of understanding the Middle Eastern legal system. I saw the, the Clark Initiative program at Cornell Law School. You see Harvard Law School had the biggest Islamic legal studies and Middle Eastern uh, studies program. Uh, you can see that at Indiana University in Bloomington. Uh, we don't have that in Indianapolis, unfortunately, but it's, it's, it's a growing area. And, and uh, in terms of foreign policy, I think there is a big interest. In, and um, when the United States also sent their ambassadors to that regime or to that region, it's important for them to see how these ambassadors or these U.S. foreign services will be dealing with very sensitive matters in the region, like women's rights, gender equality, um, freedom of speech, uh, minorities' rights, including uh, religious beliefs and freedom of religion and freedom of belief, etc. Uh, so these are the main sensitive issues that mostly when the United States send their delegates or their uh, diplomats there, uh, they wanted to make sure if these are like in terms of our policies or not which country we should uh, continue our good relations in, in terms of the allies in the region. Yeah. Right. So in your article, um, I guess kind of moving away from the cause of the corruption and everything, mm. um, you kind of talk about codes of ethics mm. and how these codes could be used to limit corruption, uh, kind of like a plan of attack to uh, right the wrongs of corruption. What exactly are codes of ethics? In the weak democracies where corruption is widespread, top politicians who have enhanced themselves illegitimately have strong inducements to cling to power by enemies, avoid prosecution, and thereby continue to enrich themselves. In order to stay in power, corrupt leaders may seek to weaken democratic check, checks on their power, for example, by compelling political competition through electoral fraud, as well as purging the civil service and flagging regulatory agencies. They often bypass formal institutions, which are meant to enable transparency in government spending and um, government spending and other decisions, while oversight agencies and the judiciary may be politicized or left weak. In some cases, state institutions are used as repressive mechanisms to ensure the continuation of the incumbent rule, going from the rule of law to the rule by law, or at some point could be ruled by man. These actions undermine democratic consolidation processes, preventing further democratization. In terms of code of ethics, as you mentioned, these codes are written to guide behavior and any final analysis of the influence of a code must include how well it affects behavior. Legal scholars debate how codes generally revolves around whether more general codes are mere platitudes and whether more detailed codes entail behavior about which reasonable individuals um, can disagree. Um, you will see that code of conducts always are not intended for bad persons, but for the persons who want to act morally, as the corrupt person will seldom follow a code, while most people, particularly public officials, wanted ethical guidance in difficult or uncertain situations. Uh, 
Um, effective code of conducts are not simply a text. Rather, they demonstrate the fundamental principles and values of a public service. These can include moral legalistic guidelines as restrictions on enhancing transparency and prevent conflicts of interests. Also, codes of conduct can comprise values, um, but the critical elements in the codes are the strong articulations of philosophies that are derived from morals. And this distinction has its clearest conceptualizations in the 18th century by our great philosopher Jeremy Bentham. And I can tell you that I have been um, developing an article recently published by Indiana International Comparative Law Review on, on, on how codes of ethics in the Middle East played a fundamental role um, to, um, I can say, to um, diminish uh, the fight against corruption. So, Jeremy Bentham, for him, a principle was a general rule or rule that guides behavior or decisions. And Terry Cooper mentioned... An ethical principle is a statement concerning the conduct or state of being that is required for the fulfillment of a value. It explicitly links a value with a general mode of action. For example, justice may be considered a significant value, but the term itself does not tell us what rule for conduct or state of society would fall if we include justice in our value system. It has been argued by legal scholars at some point and political scientists that some particular strategies should be considered in terms of the definition of codes of conduct and how code of conduct should play a fundamental role in fighting corruption in the MENA region. Those elements or those, I can say, features that have been described by scholars are or are robust and including actual effective legislations which require public officials to give justify their official decisions, like freedom of information, information loss, for example, or what we call the FOIA law. Second, management attitudes, which encourage all public officials and civil servants to deal definitely with corruption and immoral acts when they encounter it whistleblower protection law to protect suitable public interest disclosures of official misconduct. Third, ethics audits to recognize risks to the integrity, processes like financial management, tendering, recruitment and promotion, dismissal, etc. Fourth, new human resource management policies as ethical underperformance with the disciplinary processes, uh, merit-based promotion and recruitment. Fifth, training and development in the code of conduct content and in terms of fighting misuse of power and finally here effective external and internal complaint and redress procedures so it is important when we talking about codes of ethics it's generally recognized as meaningful and enforceable ethical codes linked to systematic or systemic practices and procedures based on law and backed by managerial leadership. But the major problem for executing these effective codes of conduct in the Middle Eastern countries remain that no law or code will be of much value if the public officials lack the technical competence to recognize ethical problems or if they do not know what standards their institutions 
except of them if they consider it to be not in their interests personally or professionally to take a standard of transparency and integrity and against corruption. So in that analysis, I'm not sure how Middle Eastern countries are interested to apply or to design codes of conduct. I can tell you right now that there are codes of conduct have been drafted in Egypt, in Tunisia, but how effective they are, I can tell you zero effect. I mean, there is, no, there is no application of those on the practical ground. And this is why you still see administrative corruption or what, what I call it a bureaucratic cultural or pity corruption within the US term is still like widespread and rampant. So uh, it, it, it is an interesting concept when you talk about code of ethics because it's very uh, common here in the United States or in the Western cultures generally, including Europe, um, to see codes, codes of conduct. But the interesting idea also when I taught in Brazil as a Latin American country, I realized the same problem of the lack of, I mean, like the code of conduct in terms of uh, fighting corruption. And you can see that through the public institutions, including universities, which I was surprised. Right. So. So these codes of ethics, you kind of talked about, you know, they could be a solution or they could help uh, guide and maybe resolve some uh, corruption. But as a general matter, what do you think can be done to end administrative or institutional corruption in the Middle East? Do you even think it would be possible to do that at this point? I'm not sure, Nick. That's a great question, actually. But I'm not sure if we... Um if we will be able to end up corruption or at least to diminish it. Um, but there are, of course, some guidelines for any country, not only the Middle East, to help um, the to help within the fight against corruption. Like, for example, serve, serving the public interest or the public good or the public welfare, which mostly never happened by the leaders of the Middle East. So public officials mostly are anticipated to reinforce the public trust and the confidence in government, but that's never happened. Second, transparency and integrity through whistleblower programs, um, through, I mean, the designing legislation with respect to fight conflict of interest, and that's totally complicated in the Middle East, which... And that's mostly, when you're talking about whistleblower, that's mostly um, required the needs to protect the whistleblowers and, and the, I mean, and actually I can say reporters, witnesses, and journalists that they always deal with corruption scandals because otherwise the, the intimidation or retaliation is, 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 a, is a rule in that perspective. So mostly... If you are a reporter and you talk about a scandal by a figure of a regime, or if you're close to the circle of the regime and you start talking about corruption matters, uh, the regime could be very aggressive to you in terms of retaliation, in terms of uh, intimidation, not only to you, but also to your family members. Um, I can say also that 
uh, legitimacy and fairness could be um, one of these um, factors, which means that public officials are required to administer the laws and regulations and to exercise administrative power on behalf of the government or the parliament or congresses or other such competent authority. Efficiency, effectiveness, and awareness. And that's important. And within the field of civil service, the service delivery developed by civil service agencies, specifically defined by administrative law, um, should include fundamental and moral ideologies in that regard. When we're talking about services, how services should be um, regulated or how services should be delivered to public citizens. Um, accountability, which is important. And I can tell you that accountability uh, as a principle is not that developed within the strict way as I can see it here in the United States or within Western laws. It complains. It's important to have a strategy for the public citizen to complain about um, the problems or whatever um, issues that developed in terms of um, executing public services and when they complain they, they, they should um, see that there is kind of improvement from the governments in that regard which is mostly mostly complaints when you write a complaint in the Middle Eastern re re regime or region you will never find out that this complaint will be effective which uh, which which is very uh, complicated in addition to that I think that there are some good um, factors that recently added by the scholars is specifically mm -hmm. to be uh, applied in that regime or in that region one of them is ending impunity and that's very interesting operative law and regulation enforcement is vital to guarantee the corrupt are punished and break the cycle of impunity or freedom from sentence or loss second promote transparency and information access countries successful at reducing administrative corruption have a long tradition of government openness press freedom transparency and access to information third empower public citizens firming citizens demand for anti-corruption and empowering them to hold government accountable which i see it in a great shape in the united states now we we are seeing a try of impeaching the president because of his corrupt activities you will never ever see that in the middle east they will never ever as you probably heard or probably aware that ex-president mubarak show up in court for two years just in order to make the public opinion okay and then the court acquitted him after two years and they right. said that he had been doing a great job <laughs> after this big corruption things that we had not a lot of accountability <laughs> oh for sure for sure i think reform reforming public administration and financial management along with um closing the international loopholes uh, in terms of the application of international agreements, in terms of fighting corruption within these governments, should be should be applied. Now, in your article, what I think is one of the more interesting things that you talk about is what you do is you take these principles of the code of ethics and you take uh, all these suggestions that you just made on uh, combating administrative and institutional corruption 
and you apply them to two countries in sort of a case study, uh, Egypt and uh, Tunisia. And um, you discuss them in the case study and you apply all of this. And I, I, what I want to do is I want to leave some stuff for people to read uh, and get to um, and not just listen and uh, skip the reading part. So I'm going to leave some of that stuff for the reading of your article. And I want to skip ahead a little bit to you've mentioned a lot about U.S. foreign policy. Exactly. And it's it's really hard to talk about the topic of mid the Middle East without also talking about U.S. foreign policy. Okay. Historically, how has U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East impacted administrative uh, corruption in the Middle East? That's a very good question. Um, I, I think one of the main things that we can see, as you mentioned historically, that the United States played a fundamental role in fighting corruption, at, at the administrative corruption within the Middle East through different, um, I can say, legal perspectives, specifically. One of the main channels that the United States have been uh, involved in that um, they tried to strengthen the role of the non governmental organizations and enhancing the civil society services, which is which is kind of interesting to see how the United States have been strengthening that at some point. And on the other hand, you will see that governments in the Middle East are cracking down and um, I can say suppressing the NGOs and civil societies organizations. And you can see that through the recent laws on um, right to assembly as a constitutional right mentioned within the constitutions of several countries in the Middle East and how that right already had been violated through the laws that issued recently by Middle Eastern governments or Middle Eastern regimes in terms to um, crackdown on organizations that they are helping to combat corruption specifically within uh, on, on the administrative level. And what I mean, mean always by administrative level that when you're talking about the public service or public office, how employees or, I mean, public staff or public employees deals with citizens. Mostly you have to bribe most of the public officials in order to get your thing done. You will never ever see that your stuff will gonna be done uh, unless you have to bribe somebody was, I mean, not only financially, but in terms of exchanging favors at some point. Okay, you, know, you do this, I will do that for you. It's all, which is a yeah. quid pro quo. As the right, term, it's operational. Operation, exactly. So it, it is very complicated to see that the how the mostly when the civil societies organizations start to talk to people about that and how to strengthen their social awareness about how this kind of um, misusing office or misusing public office is very, very uh, dangerous and make the government uh, checks and balances at risk. Um, the government at this point, or governments, is started to like, oh, the, these organizations or these civil societies are a kind of a threat to us, so we have to crack down on them. 
The United States helps, the European Union helps through their programs, through their delegations in the Middle East in terms of, as you mentioned, uh, the foreign policy. But it, 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 it's interesting to me at some point when you see that, oh, the United States, European Union always like to see a greater democratic Middle East. They wanted to see a great profile of human rights within the Middle East. At the same time, the United States and the European Union countries, they supporting dictatorship. So I do not understand how the United States wanted to see a democratic values to be achieved in that part of the world. And at the same time, they have been supporting President Mubarak for 30 years. They have been supporting... Um, Gaddafi, the president of Libya, mm-hmm. for 40 years. So I didn't understand. I didn't. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I think one of the main thing in my understanding to these policies is the stability of the region. We wanted to see this region as as stable as as much as we can see that it's stable, irrespective of their uh, democratic values achieved or not. And at some point, when people talk to me in Egypt or around, they told me that. The United States left us without anything, and they told them, what do you mean? You have to do that yourself. Do you, I mean, I told them, I lived here for 12 years, and I see people that they are doing their things by themselves when they're talking about democracy. When they, There is nobody like, we're going to say, oh, you have to do this. I said that I saw, I see the American people, they do things like, it, it's. they feel that it's their duty to enhance accountability or to enhance Democracy and right, like civics. And, exactly, yeah. exactly. But it's it's in in the Middle East, people rely on Western governments to do that for them or on their behalf, because we always feel that it's a right for the Western governments or Western regimes to intervene in our policies, which is not acceptable. Because in terms of legal matters, you cannot say that because of the national sovereignty of. Each, each, each country as a main principle of public international law. So what are your thoughts about how a change in U.S. foreign policy could help end administrative corruption in the Middle East? The main thing that we have to look at the symptoms of the problem and its roots. In other words, mostly Focusing on roots are much important than focusing on symptoms. And, and both terms are connected. Because mostly, we focus on symptoms more than roots. The United States and the Western governments have to stop supporting dictatorial regimes in the region in order to make sure that we will enhance democracy we will enhance a good profile of human rights. We will enhance the non-misuse of power or the misuse of public office. That's, I think, one of the main core um, elements that should be done from the perspective of the United States um, to enhance that. On the other hand, the United States at some point have the role to hold these governments accountable in terms of violation of the rule of law. So when the United States realize that there is a big violation of the democratic values or a rampant corruption in a country, they have to say that these countries have to hold accountable. And at some point, you could use some means diplomatically to punish 
these countries according to the law. Like, for example, cutting off the economic assistance or military assistance according to the law here in the United States, or to say that we are like cutting off our relations in terms of exchange programs or economic programs or military assistance or whatever, whatever interest that include both. Um, national security interests of, of the United States and the other countries they're dealing with. Um, but I, I think also if we have a political will, a good political will, that also will enhance the, 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 the achievement of democratic values in order to fight corruption. You will not be able to end up corruption generally in the world because we can see because people like for example when they talk to me in Egypt they told me so you never see corruption in the United States I said no there is a there are there is corruption and there are corruption scandals and one of these right now we see the one of the big corruption thing within the office of the United States the, I mean the office of the presidency of the United States a quid pro quo thing within the president of Ukraine mm -hmm. so it's that's one of the biggest corruption scandals same thing when it happened when uh, President Nixon Watergate scandal and it's the same thing. Even in my perspective, I think what, what President Trump is, do, is doing or have been doing is much more um, deeply concerned in terms of corruption because I felt that at least President Nixon put the interests of the United States at, at his top. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, or in contrast, I didn't see that within this current administration, which is very kind of concerning. Um, so, but how the United States could achieve that at the current moment. I'm not sure if the United States is able to do that at the current moment under this administration in order to make sure that we will not, like we will achieve a great value of, uh, a great values or a good number of principles to, to, uh, to fight corruption. Because as I can see that these terms are shrinking right now within the US policies. So, I'm not sure if you have been following the testimonies of the impeachment inquiry. I have been following that. And that was very interesting to me to see one of the main things that Ambassador Sondland have been saying in his testimony that the president uh, is caring about big stuff. And then I think Ambassador Holmes said, what is big stuff you mean? He said that things that benefits the president. and that's a big issue here that raised concerns. We never had this within the US uh, policies, but if the, I mean, the person that in the Oval Office, which means that it's, it's, it's the highest, uh, highest job or the highest office in the land that he is dealing in that way, how we will expect that we will see enhancement within uh, democratic principles or uh, fighting corruption within the Middle East. So we have to see transparency and the integrity here first at this point, not right now. I'm not sure that not right now that will, I mean, the U.S. policies in the, in the region is not in a good shape. And you can see a lot of scholars and, and everybody like I talk with, they said that we are not doing good in terms of foreign policies right now towards specifically the Middle East. So the, yeah, those are a lot of great points, and I encourage everyone to read Professor Rafa's uh, 
article when it comes out in the spring semester. Um, but before we wrap up here, do you have any upcoming projects that you can talk about to give our li listeners just a little sneak peek? Sure. I have two projects right now on my plate. One is on Islam and democracy and if they are compatible or not. And I'm discussing this article with a great um, historian in Islamic law and Islamic philosophy uh, at the University of Trento, Professor Massimo Campanini from Italy. And we are discussing this at the current moment. Um, and to in this article, we are responding to Professor Noah Feldman about his approach and his recent book about the, the, the rise and the fall of the Islamic State. Uh, professor Feldman, he's a, a professor of Islamic studies and con law at Harvard Law School, and he has a big interest in the Middle East. So we are responding to his uh, book. And on the other hand, I'm having another co-author article with my, um, my, my, my friend, Professor Sergio Gramito at Monash University in Australia, which I'm going um, in, in, in this spring by April as a visiting scholar. Um, it's, it's, it's about legal personality of cooperation in Islamic law. If the cooperation have a personality or a legal personality as natural persons. And there are big debates here. It was an interesting idea because I developed this idea when I when he invited me to speak to his class last year at Cornell and he told me I, I wanted you to talk to students about uh, corporations in Islamic law. And he asked me a question, does corporation have a legal personality? I told him I should have to do research on that. And then we like started to design an article. This article should be coming very soon, also in a special issue at Seattle Law Review. So uh, I have these two, I mean, two uh, projects at the current moment I'm, I'm working on. And uh, I'm very excited also about my upcoming visit to Australia. So uh, that's what I have right now. Sounds like you have a lot going on, some awesome articles. Thanks. And uh, I'm sure everyone here at New England Law uh, would be very excited to read these articles as soon as they come out. And if our listeners wanted to contact you to discuss this piece or sure. any other issues, how could they do that? I think it's it's good to reach out to me by email. So I, I have my Indiana mail. It's I mean it's 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 I mean I mean feel free also to call me if if, if they want. But I think uh, reaching out by email, I'll be more than happy to uh, respond to um, to I mean listeners or audience that they, they will listen to that interview or uh, to read the upcoming article. So I'll be more than happy to, to respond to their emails or, I mean, I'm available to, I mean, I'll be more than happy to reach out to, to people. And we'll make sure to post that kind of information uh, wherever we end up posting sure. this podcast. Sure, and so Professor Rafa, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and talk with us. We look forward to publishing your article in the near future. And if any of our listeners are interested in coming onto this podcast as a guest or have suggestions for future guests, please feel free to reach out. You can do so by emailing forum, F-O-R-U-M, at N-E-S-L dot E-D-U. Thanks for listening, everyone.